Hey there, dear listener, it's Alf Hibunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Or you could call us BungaCast for short. BungaCast is myself, Alex Hochuli, Philip Cunliffe, and George Hoare. Back in episode 113 that came out towards the end of March, we talked to Richard Williams about global cities. You know, those capitals of capital that have this distinctive globalness about them. The creation of those places is driven by the need to attract transnational capital. So you might be thinking about London and New York as the archetypes. But actually, it might be Singapore that best exemplifies the global city. In fact, you've probably heard some neoliberal snob in a polo shirt ask why their country isn't like Singapore, or argue how, if only they adopted more free market policies, they could be rich and developed and clean, just like the Southeast Asian city-state. Singapore is a free market utopia, and its model is accessible to all. And although these arguments are maybe more frequently found amongst the elites of developing countries, you've no doubt heard it in the rich world too. Well, today we're talking about why this idea is a myth. We're discussing the uses to which this myth is put, and learning about the reality of Singapore, which, as we'll find out, is pretty different to the fetishized object that obsesses the neoliberal fever brain. To help us out, we've called up friend of the podcast, Lee Jones, who's back on. Now, before we go over the discussion, if you're a patron of Alpha Bunga Bunga, you're hearing this on early release at the end of March. If you're not, you should know that patrons from $5 a month and up get around two original episodes a month that only they have access to, where we go deeper on some issues, often with the help of our regular guests. If that sounds like something you'd like, go to patreon.com slash bungacast, and if you're already enjoying it, uh, please review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours. Or indeed, tell your friends about BungaCast. Word of mouth is always great. All right, on to the myth, the fetish, and the reality of Singapore. Lee is with George uh, in London. Actually, George is with Lee, I, I believe, there in, in Lee's house. So I'm going to pass over to him um, rather than try to do this remotely without even being able to see Lee. As you can see each other, why don't you talk to each other, George? <laughs> Thanks very much for that introduction Alex very um very helpful so um and Lee thanks you know thanks thanks for having me as well and thanks for being on on the it's podcast always a pleasure um great so yeah so Singapore today I think just to kick things off and this is probably a question for everybody we hear a lot of discussion about Singapore it's um it certainly has uh, a hold on a certain section of the imagination of some right-wing people who often get quite excited about it but yeah, who who loves Singapore and why, Lee? Well, I think, I mean, I always describe Singapore as a bit of a guilty pleasure um, because I do a lot of field work in Asia, particularly Southeast Asia. And the thing about Singapore is that it works. You know, it's, it functions fairly well compared to other parts of Southeast Asia. Um, so when you go, you, you're there for business. You need things to operate smoothly. And Singapore is very good at doing that. Uh, and for, for similar sorts of reasons, the elites and middle classes of Southeast Asia, developing Asia more broadly, absolutely love and love to hate Singapore. Mm. So they absolutely fetishize Singapore as being this, you know, this gleaming, clean place where everything's orderly. You know, there are no slums, there are no homeless people on the streets, there's no poor people in your way. The, the transport system works well, there are no traffic jams. You know, it's just it just works. And yeah. That's what we want in our cities, too. But they also hate Singapore. Uh, they're very jealous of Singapore's success. Yeah. And they're very jealous of Singapore's quite sort of exploitative uh, role in the regional economy. So 
people love it and they hate it in equal measure i think so a bit more a bit more broadly phil you had some some opinions on on the singapore enthusiasts closer to, to home in britain yeah i mean i've never been to singapore so i can only really talk about the um, the place that Singapore occupies in people's imaginations in the West. And what's striking is how often it recurs um, in different contexts and with different people about Singapore as um, as a model. Mm. Um, I've heard it, uh, obviously, it's been very present in the debate in Britain about um, in certain um, wings of the Tory party and on the libertarian right about Singapore as a model for Britain um, emancipating itself from this highly restrictive um, regulatory trading block, the European Union, and then we become some kind of um, prim, nimble, um, mm. virtuous, low-tax haven like Singapore, the Singapore and Thames model. But mm. I've heard it also in reference to other things as well, such as um, that Singapore would be a model for Greece, say, if Greece was able to leave the European Union, that Greece would be able to become uh, Singapore in the Mediterranean, <laughs> Yeah. Um, so it's often it's frequently used, and I also um, and you know it also recurs in other um, discussions and development studies, which of which I've you know which I've encountered over the years, in which Singapore is venerated as a model of efficient, executive style corporate technocratic government mm. where things work. And if things work, you know what is there to argue about? At the end of the day, you can kind of complain about this and complain about that. But if things work and people can do what they want to do, then um, what is there to say, essentially? Yeah, professional, clean, just works. I mean, what, who can disagree with that? Alex, any any thoughts? Well, on I mean, I think it's even this? more egregious in uh, developing countries or emerging economies as well. I mean, my experience in Brazil and to lesser extent else from elsewhere, examples elsewhere in Latin America, and I'm sure this applies in Africa and everywhere else, where local elites... Uh, in uh, an economy which is and in a society which is vastly unequal, basically trying to do everything possible to escape from any national and democratic constraints, uh, state intervention yeah. in the economy, will just salivate over Singapore and use it as an example to argue for selling off state industries or cutting social spending or lowering taxes, having lower wages, uh, opening the economy to foreign direct investment, uh, deregulation, uh, doing away with any sort of economic planning or role for the state in the economy, and just basically bending over for international mm. foreign capital and hoping that it fills your holes. Um, and it's really it's really <laughs> disgusting. Um, and I, I mean, I, I could cite some examples specifically recently probably one of the most disgusting figures in brazilian politics today is the governor of the state of sao paulo joan doria who sold himself as an entrepreneur as a completely post-political um guy who just gets things done and isn't ideological in any way then hung on to bolsonaro's coattails doing finger guns with him and even rebranded as bolso doria right like bolsonaro <laughs> and doria which is a terrible portmanteau uh and now has gone back to being kind of more the entrepreneur who gets things done and is a true liberal uh to distinguish himself from bolsonaro who's a fucking idiot um and you know he he wants to privatize the port of santos uh citing singapore as like you know it's a it's efficient and it's productive and it's because it's privatized just like singapore um and it's this stuff's kind of everywhere um yeah i i guess it's one of those um <clears throat> cases that whatever somebody thought previously it just so happens that singapore supports what what they thought all along yeah, with yeah. the added with the added benefit that it's it, it is that you know pragmatically 
it just works. So let's not bring politics in into it. Let's just copy Singapore and we can get things done. It's also just to add to that. It's also used as a, as a kind of um, um, how do I say like a flattering point of comparison. So, for instance, in the Middle East, Dubai is often referred to as the Singapore of the Gulf. Mm. The point being that it has a similar kind of um, it's a similar kind of it's a small city state, a trading entrepot, um, financial center, a glittering kind of cityscape that arose out of nothing to tremendous um, wealth and prominence and success, a consumerist kind of haven and paradise and yeah. technocratically efficiently run. Um, imported so that destitute also, workers. Of, sorry. And imported nearly destitute workers, too, you know. Yeah, so you know, and I, I I imagine that's different um, with Singapore specifically. But the no, um, anyway, well, it's only to say. Well, uh, Lee can you can tell us more, but it's only to say that the um, <clears throat> that it's also the Singapore is a kind of a way to describe other places that are supposedly similar to Singapore or approach Singapore as paragon. Um, it's also used in those contexts as well. So if that's sort of some of the the picture of Singapore, the, the ideological uses of the idea of Singapore. Um, maybe over to you, Lee, a little bit. What's what's the reality? In particular, I guess the, the recent history um, and politics of Singapore, because I think it's particularly important for dispelling some of these more simplistic um, understandings of Singapore to really understand how uh, how the politics of Singapore has developed. Mm. <clears throat> the reality is very different. Um, but Singaporean elites themselves go around the world telling everybody how brilliant mm. they are and how everybody should copy them. So it's hardly surprising that this myth of the Singapore model um, gets around. But really, uh, it's based on a misunderstanding of Singapore's development. And, it, and Singapore really isn't a model for anybody. But to, to understand how Singapore has been able to do what it's done, and what it has achieved is, in some sense, remarkable. So if we think about when it became independent, uh, in 1965, the uh, gross national income per capita was $516. Mm. Uh, so it was somewhere between Mexico and Jamaica. It's by no means the poorest of the poor, but it's pretty poor. Mm. Uh, 2018, the last year, we've got solid data for uh, the per capita income is nearly $59,000. So it's between Sweden and Denmark. Mm. So in the words of the former longtime prime minister, Lee Kuan Yew, Singapore went from third world to first. Mm. So that's the that's the the achievement. And there have been real material gains, and you can see it in the physical infrastructure in, in Singapore. Mm. But yeah. how did it manage to do that? Did it manage that by just being this uh, neoliberal, deregulated society? Not at all. Um, you have to understand the, the Cold War context in Singapore, where the People's Action Party, which is the, the party that's dominated Singapore and has ruled it since independence, it rose to power in the context of very intense social conflict, where there was uh, a very powerful left in Singapore, mm. a very well organized trade union movement. And there were real fears by the British who had colonized uh, Singapore and, and Malaya that Singapore would go communist. So the, and the PAP was this sort of left, kind of social democratic yeah. nationalist party. The, the PAP being the People's Action Party. The People's Action Party basically being the only only game in town. Well, it's the only game in town today, but back then there were lots of competing parties. Right. Um, and there were lots of socialists inside the PAP. Yeah. But the, P, the, um, the PAP essentially rode to power 
on the backs of the left in cahoots with the British colonial authorities who they could see were if we could put these get these people into power they'd be a more moderate nationalist force yeah and they uh, they as soon as they managed to gain office they turned on the left and started interning mm. uh, left-wing activists so many socialists left the PAP to form their own uh, front the Barisan Socialis and then they were cracked down on so the PAP rode to power on the backs of the left and then destroyed the organised left completely. Um, but they did still face the problem of how do you deliver rapid development to avoid a communist takeover? And that's mm. the fear. Just, in before, the... just before you get into that, Lee, yeah. could you maybe link um, that history to the Malayan emergency as well in the 1950s in Malaysia? Yeah, certainly. So, after, so during World War II, the British were kicked out of the Malayan peninsula by the Japanese. Uh, the fall of Singapore being a massive uh, shock to the British Empire that reverberated around the world. Uh, and the British came back after World War II, but they found that uh, they, they weren't very welcomed by particularly the Chinese population. So the, lots of Chinese and Indian labourers had been brought to the Malayan Peninsula to work in um, different forms of mining and plantations. And the, the Chinese basically fleeing the Japanese occupation had, had taken large parts of uh, land and were farming it for themselves. And they were really the base of the Malayan Communist Party. And the British fought a vicious colonial war against the Malayan Communist Party to make sure that they were defeated before they handed power to moderate local nationalists. And initially, Singapore achieved independence um, as part of the Malayan Federation in 1963. But there were irreconcilable differences between the leadership of um, Malaya, who were ethnic Malay mm-hmm. aristocrats, and Lee Kuan Yew and the People's Action Party, who were ethnic Chinese, based in the predominantly ethnic Chinese Singapore. And Singapore was always seen as suspect at this time because it was so ethnically Chinese and therefore associated with the People's Republic of China. Um, so, so that's the Cold War context. Yeah. Right. So just, just to, to simplify. 1959 under British colonial rule, then a period of um, uh, in, independence achieved, and then by the so by the late 60s, what's the what sort of um, economic system is is dominant in Singapore? So in the late 60s, Singapore is on its own, right, uh, and the government is still very scared of a communist takeover, mm-hmm. uh, and you can see this in private conversations they have with foreign diplomats in the archives. They're, they're genuinely terrified. So they had to develop the economy rapidly to solve mass unemployment and uh, poverty. But what most developing countries are doing at this time was import substituting industrialization. So you try to develop your own industries mm-hmm. to avoid having to import them. Singapore couldn't do that because it was too small. It had no real domestic market. So very early on, it turned to export-oriented industrialization, uh, making stuff for export, basically. Um, but the PAP also, there were certain political constraints to this. The PAP were very distrustful of the ethnic Chinese bourgeoisie. They didn't think that they were uh, sufficiently uh, patriotic as part of it. Uh, they were suspicious of their loyalties, but also they thought they weren't, they were just a kind of rentier class that weren't really going to industrialize Singapore. Um, so they instead turned to state-owned companies, mm-hmm. uh, the so-called GLCs, the government-linked companies. 
Uh, and they developed these as the sort of um, linchpins of the economy in the commanding heights of industrialization, which they financed using a, a forced savings scheme. So basically, uh, the <coughs> excuse me, a pension scheme, the CPF, which takes a very large chunk of people's salary today, it's at least a fifth, mm. uh, and, and you know, invests it on their behalf, in inverted yeah. commas, at below inflation rates. So basically, it's a form of tax. So forced savings that are then invested through these government-linked companies into developing industries. So state capitalism, essentially. And then uh, opening up Singapore to foreign investment. So attracting foreign capitalists to come to Singapore and invest there. So this the PAP's development strategy has always been based around these two things. It's an alliance between state capital on the one hand mm-hmm. and transnational corporations on the other. Um, and these GLCs are now massive transnational capitalist enterprises in their own right. So um, many uh, many GLCs are under a holding company called Temasek Holdings, yeah. and uh, their their investments are uh, more than 226 billion US dollars, wow. and 74% of that is now invested outside of Singapore. Hmm. So it. That is the basis of the Singaporean development model. It's this alliance between heavily state-directed capital on the one hand and foreign capital on the other. It's not deregulated neoliberalism. Right. So, so you're saying it's a better model of authoritarian socialism, in fact, yeah. than um, kind of freewheeling neoliberal deregulation. Well, they would still describe themselves as socialist or social democratic. Uh, and they were part of the, the Socialist International, mm. in fact. And this this does reflect their origins in the Cold War and having to fight for the loyalty of the population uh, at that time and having to develop, deliver real development gains to the population, does, at least for the first few decades. So would, would calling, them, in terms would of, calling um, them something, would calling them like hyper-capitalists, would that be a smear? I mean, could you call that a, a pap smear? For, for example. And if I, you know. well... <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's good. Alex, Alex had been waiting so on that for than... 10 minutes, <laughs> developing that. Just waiting for the opportunity to, for someone to say, anyway. Yeah. That's out of the I way wanna, now. We can, we can get on with it. To come up with bad jokes. I want to add, add a, serious, uh, a serious kind of codicil to that, which is that um, in terms of, uh, I don't know, say, social policies on the family or on housing or on, um, I don't know, education, can we see evidence of that um, of that kind of social democratic outlook like we might expect, say, from a Scandinavian or um, maybe a mid-century um, West European social democratic party? No, absolutely not. Um, the What you do get from the PAP, because of its need to host foreign capital, from the very start, it's been uh, very clean, mm-hmm. very uh, pro-business, and very technocratic, and that's where it gets its... Uh, Sounds like perfect social democracy, then. Uh, not really, um, because the flip side is the authoritarianism. So you have this incredibly technocratic state. Social democracy, like I said. It's not social democracy, Phil, okay? <laughs> uh, the... if, you want to def- if you want to defend social democracy... Oh, fine. my goodness. I'm making a point, a genuine point, about yeah, the... I know. And, you know, because if you compare it, say, to, um, I don't know, say the interwar Austrian Social Democratic Party in terms of the developmental program that they had for um, Austria's working class, I mean, it's not to say they were authoritarian necessarily, Um, but I'm genuine, you know, in terms of housing programs, say, 
in terms of um, the way in which it provides public education. I imagine this is in an old-fashioned grand social democratic style. A uh, big, powerful state is going to lay on, um, is going to lay things on in the grand style for you. And does that? Do you see that in Singapore? Aside from its kind of dependence and reliance on um, big foreign capitalists. So I guess maybe to to move this, you know, or or to generalise this 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 point that Phil's making. I mean, this model was successful at, at certain points, very successful. And maybe you could, you know, this this alliance between foreign capital and um, state capitalism and the, the PAP playing that important role in kind of mediating and, and organising that. Maybe just to, if you could tell us a little bit about, I guess, the, the periods at which this had been relatively successful and then whether it's still quite successful now and by successful i mean in terms of some things phil's phil was talking about mm. like a big welfare spend and some of the things that some people might associate with with a social democracy working well i mean i suppose the point that that phil's getting at is it has some truth in it in that the singaporean state can be seen as a corporatist state in the mm. sense that it has uh, deliberately brought together the state business and labor mm. uh, but I think in contrast to the post-war social democratic state in Europe, that corporatist pact there was certainly a way to sort of incorporate and defang the, the more radical aspects of organised labour. But it was also a recognition of organised labour's power. Mm. Um, and it was, a, it, was, it was an expression of a class compromise. And in Singapore, um, the left was defanged and the trade union movement tamed really prior to its incorporation. So there's a, a huge emphasis on social stability and, and international competitiveness. Strikes were outlawed in 1967 mm. and the trade union congress is headed by a government minister. So yeah. it's a state organised trade union. All of the laws, uh, all of the trade unions are, are outlawed. Foreign businesses sit on the wages council that, that, that sets wages in Singapore. Uh, and there's widespread repression of civil and political rights. So that's the sense in which this is very much a state-dominated form of so-called social democracy or corporatism, where the state is the dominant actor because the business class is very weak mm -hmm. and labor, mm -hmm. uh, organized labor movement is deliberately weakened by state intervention. So it's, it's very much directed by the party state itself in this particular case. So with this, so I mean, I guess that, you know, that already kind of punctures the neoliberal um the kind of corporate neoliberal illusion about um, about Singapore. Going a bit further, then, with respect to questions like basic civil liberties, um, <clears throat> freedom of speech, freedom of association, how far do they fare in Singapore? I mean, I've heard stories, but I suppose it would be useful to hear something more concrete. Yeah, we were talking about this before we started uh, recording, Lee. Actually, the, the 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 vandalism law, the Public Order Act. Maybe just yeah, tell us a little bit about. This, I guess, the um, some of the, manip the manipulation of the political process that the PAP engages in, and some of this, um, um, I guess, political control that it exercises. Yeah. So, so Singapore is formally a Westminster-based system. It has a president, but it has a, a parliamentary system of regular elections. Uh, but it, it it carefully gerrymanders the elections uh, in various ways. And it also massively controls the political and civic sphere. So obviously it controls the trade union movement. All 
civic associations have to be registered and approved by the government. Mm -hmm. And they may not engage in political activity as a condition of their registration. So civil society becomes its most depoliticized, uh, you know, they, they just talk about how we can green Singapore, but we don't talk about environmental policy, for example, um, or corporate policy. Um, and then in terms of in terms of opposition parties, they're constantly kept on the back foot. Um, the government will call a snap election when the opposition has no means of, um, of organising itself. They'll sue. Opposition. They will sue politicians. I mean, this is what you know, there's a rule, not rule of law, but rule by law in Singapore. So if you are deemed to have defamed a government minister, that's a crime uh, and you can be hauled before the court. Uh, imposed with a massive fine that bankrupts you, which disqualifies you from public office. So sig significant opposition leaders are are dragged through the courts and disqualified. So there's no sort of, you know, illegal disappearing of people. Or, it's all done perfectly by the book. And they get very cross if you say uh, that the Singaporean courts are, are not above, perfectly above board. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a manipulation of the legal system to shut these things down. Uh, they maintained colonial era internal security act to lock up their opponents and they were rounding up communists as late as the late 1980s mm. uh, you mentioned the public order act um, that allows um, a gathering of one person to be regarded as an illegal assembly mm. um, so i'm not quite sure how you assemble one person but well, it's, uh, it's quite easy you're pre-assembled yeah um, avenger assembled yeah. just avenger <laughs> single uh, the so the, you can be uh, locked up for that uh, vandalism that can cover things like uh, sellotaping a sign protesting against the government to a uh, bit of public transport for example uh, so there are all these kinds of repressive laws more recently laws against fake news whereby the government can basically decide what fake news is and anything they don't like gets outlawed massive control of the of the internet mm. it's a highly regulated society where there is really no uh, freedom of speech there isn't really academic freedom i guess the, so i think it was last year that any film with a political content was made illegal just to watch let alone produce and already by 1974 the government was basically owning the means of communication but i guess the question is does this have a is there a sort of self an additional self-censorship um element is our because <clears throat> all of these means are illegal Right, or, or rule um, by not um, of law. So it, it, does it mean that, I guess, any dissent is pre-crushed or pre-pushed down? There's an element of self-censorship. Of self and there was, there was a period, let's say from around 2005, uh, where the government tried to show that it was easing up on this censorship and that it was, uh, it was encouraging a more liberal society. Um, and then people felt quite anxious because mm. they weren't quite sure where the red lines were <laughs> anymore. And, and what you tend to find is an institutionalised cowardice in Singaporean society, uh, that people will err on the side of caution because they're not quite sure where the red lines are. And those red lines have really um, tightened in the last in the last few years as yeah. challenges to the PAP government have mounted. Uh, but I wanted to just come back to what Phil was asking about um, housing and social services and things like this, because I think this also shows another important dimension of both what the PAP did for Singapore, but also the way that they did it, because housing really symbolizes their um, their intervention in the economy. So something like 80% of Singaporeans live in public housing. So the Singaporean government has, cre has created these huge high rise 
high density blocks um, on 99 year leases, the vast majority of the population living them. Um, and yeah, that's, you wouldn't find that yeah. in a neoliberal paradise. I'm not sure, I'm not sure in, in what part of Hayek uh, the provision of social housing comes in, for example. But so on one hand, like they provided a lot of housing, which was desperately needed. Um, and that there's also right to buy and, and this kind of thing. However, uh, this is done in a very politically controlled way to enforce state dependence. Yeah. So uh, the uh, if you're living in state um, state owned housing, you're going to be more reluctant to rock the boat. Yeah. And at election time, the PAP has even threatened. You know, if you vote for the opposition in this area, well, you can wave goodbye to your HDB that the Housing Development Board property improvements. And mm -hmm. in fact, they have neglected opposition held areas deliberately for years. You get um, you get punished for voting for the you get punished party. in terms of the physical infrastructure in yeah. which you live. Um, and uh, they also have ethnic quotas about who can live in different developments, which helps them to gerrymander mm. by preventing the concentration of ethnic groups, different ethnic groups that might vote for opposition parties in particular constituencies. So they provided this public good, but they've done it in a way that cements their own domination. So a very tightly controlled society in general. Alex, yeah. I think you had a, you well, had yeah, a point I mean, here on... Hearing all that yeah, you're I, saying I've got here a point as well. is, um, is like the, the degree to which Singapore is misunderstood. I mean, you know, with the housing uh, question as, as a great case in point. Um, but also to refer back to what we were talking about right at the beginning about visions of Singapore and the way that it's fetishized or used for instrumental purposes by neoliberals or quote unquote libertarians elsewhere. Um, and again, especially in somewhere like Brazil, for instance, but I'm sure, you know, it happens in Chile. I'm sure it happens amongst elites in South Africa or wherever else. Um, where this idea of the, of the rule of law, that things just work there, that things aren't um, ideologically motivated and it's not corrupt in any way, but instead you just have a sort of form of clean governance where there's respect for the law. The problem supposedly being that in somewhere like Brazil, there's too much mess and people break the law too often. And and in Singapore, you merely have good respect for the law. And like the way that you, you describe it there, it's actually extremely authoritarian. And as you say, rule by law rather than rule of law. No, that's exactly right. I mean, the, of course, property rights are uh, tightly uh, controlled and respected. So if you're a, uh, let's say, a, a so-called foreign talent, if you're a high-end uh, service worker imported to Singapore, you know, you, you have quite a comfortable environment, you have uh, tax breaks. If you're a foreign investor, you're not going to be expropriated. It's a haven uh, for people like that. Mm. Uh, but if you're interested in uh, social justice or equality or campaigning against uh, anti-gay laws, for example, homosexuality is still illegal in Singapore, uh, then you can easily face uh, the long arm of the law because laws can be easily manipulated by the PAP because it dominates parliament and it can be constantly claiming to be um, above board. So it's always acting within the law and it's all so rule of law, but it's rule of law for certain interests and not others. So what, what model does it, if it's not the kind of the neoliberal fantasy model, which is often presented, um, it's based, like you say, on a kind of um, uh, so Cold War era, social democratic authoritarianism, state-led developmental, what, what comparators or what kind of... Um, Poli what kind of political vision does it embody in our contemporary world? 
I mean, whose actuality would it be? Because I imagine there are plenty of people who would quite like the kind of um, the uh, housing policies of Singapore, the extent of state ownership of land and property, um, who would quite like the um, the state the scale of state intervention in the economy. Whose who whose reality or whose policy vision does Singapore best express, if not that of the of neoliberals and libertarians? I mean, it really expresses its own. It's a, it's a sui generis case, I would say. It's not really a model for anyone else, despite its own proclamations to the contrary. But I think in some ways it does encapsulate a particular model, which is the marriage of authoritarianism and capitalism. Mm. Um, you know, for years, the debate in Southeast Asia and more generally in political science was around modernization theory and the idea that uh, capitalist development would bring about uh, political liberalization. Um, and although that's always been a completely dubious idea, uh, it is a zombie idea that's very hard to kill. Mm. Um, and what Singapore shows is that capitalism and authoritarianism uh, can go very nicely together. And they have done for many years. You know, In some mm. ways, the Singaporean model is, um, is the ideal shell mm. for capitalist development. What about capitalism and social democracy then? Because it seems to me that's part of what you're describing and perhaps even a multicultural paradise with this authoritarian state overseeing ethnic quotas, for instance, and ethnic harmony. Well, I'm not sure about ethnic harmony. I mean, they're very sensitive to um, they're very sensitive to interethnic uh, tension. And that involves a lot of uh, deep intervention into civil society and even well, eugenics policy. Well, even eugenics policies. I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's multicultural in the sense that we understand it in the West. Um, early leaders of the PAP said that what's required on the people of Singapore is a collective lobotomy. Uh, <laughs> they were required to um, to not uh, identify with the places from which they come. You know, if you were Indian or you were Tamil, you know, you should not think that you have that culture and you have that external orientation simply sim, sim, similarly if you're chinese ethnic chinese you should not think of yourself in that way and there have been um attempts over the years to, to get people to talk, stop speaking their own dialect if they're chinese for example um and to reduce the expression of um uh, religion and culture and when the birth rate for the ethnic chinese started to decline from the 1980s there were essentially eugenics policies introduced to try to encourage Chinese women to have more children. Mm. So that is that is a far cry from the the image of multiculturalism as developed in the West. This is one of a very coercive authoritarian state that is trying to uh, forcibly reorient people and to get them to identify as Singaporeans, uh, not as not first and foremost as, as as people of a different culture. So this was a very interventionist. Just a, a bit more detail on this very interventionist education policy um, with IQ tests streaming from the age of age nine, sterilization of women with inferior genes. There were, I mean, this was very unpopular though, wasn't it? During the uh, Singaporean second industrial revolution, there was there was pushback against some of the some of the policies you just um, it was it, just these mentioned. were not these were not um, popular policies at all. The government did retreat on mm. on some of these. Um, but I think also that those kinds of policies pushed in the 80s and the 90s, they they interface with an earlier 
period of fetishization of the Singaporean model, which was the Asian values debate. And you might remember this from the 1990s when, you know, Southeast Asia was absolutely booming and everybody was banging on about the tiger economies and so on. This was before China really took off and all the attention um, was there. But um, what the leaders of places like Singapore and Malaysia were saying was, well, it's all because of our wonderful Asian values. Right. Um, that unlike you in the decadent West, who you know, care about democracy and human rights and this kind of thing, we just focus on bread and butter issues and we're engaged in looking after our own. You know, we don't have decadent welfare states. We look after uh, our own family and we look after our parents when they're old and all that kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, the government was having to coercively legislate to uphold certain values. So, for example, this mm. Asian value of filial piety, which means you basically look after your parents when they get old, they had to legislate that, mm. right? Because they, that wasn't actually happening. So, a lot of these um, myths about the way that Asian families behave, as that as the basis for the Singapore success story. Um, actually manufactured by the PAP and often not very successfully. So, you, so the law is that you need to call your call your parents regularly, um, <laughs> if you will. Um, but no, I guess, so if that's some of the history and the politics and some of that context, more on the, I guess, on the ground. So Yeah, I was going to say, so if you, I mean, does that, so you mentioned, Lee, at the start that um, compared to the rest of Southeast Asia, when you'd visit and travel there and do your work, um, you know, it works. But what's the um, other? Do any of these kind of bizarre pathologies do they break through into the surface of everyday life when you're visiting Singapore? Yeah, they do, and I think this is where you know Singapore is not this weirdly freakish, uh, totally unique model. In a sense, Singapore, because of its very small size and its in, intense and rapid capitalist development. It has many aspects that are familiar to those of us who live in advanced capitalist states, which is that the contradictions of capitalist development um, really show. Uh, and really, since the 1980s, the, the, the benefits of capitalist development flowing to uh, poorer groups in Singaporean society have really wound down and income inequality has spiraled out of control. So I think one of the most visible signs of this when you go there, and if you spend, uh, I don't know, say a couple of weeks there, you'll definitely start to see this, is old people, uh, and I'm talking about people in their 70s and their 80s, you know, maybe bent double, uh, pushing carts around laden with cardboard. And you may think, what is all this about? Well, it's because there's a really substantial old age poverty when people leave the work with the workforce they've had this forced savings their whole life at below, below inflation rates they often can't access their pensions until much later in their lives and the the savings actually turn out to be not very good and they can't afford to live about 20 percent of the population uh, uh at least 20 percent of the population earns less than it spends on a monthly basis. Hmm. And so what these pensioners are doing is going around collecting cardboard from businesses and homes and taking it to recycling centers to be sold for, you know, maybe a couple of Singaporean dollars a kilo, something like that. And that is in a society that now, uh, to remind you, is is about $59,000 US dollars per capita. It's between Sweden and Denmark. And it's in a it's in a, <clears throat> a society where if you walk around, particularly the central 
like downtown financial area it feels like canary wharf or pudong in shanghai it has it has obviously massive amounts of wealth in these um you know these gigantic um bank buildings yeah. very yeah and everybody says it's very clean there's enormous it con- is very there's clean. enormous concentrations of capital yeah. and wealth in singapore you can, alongside you can really does that, that really does that substantial not, like, poverty does that not like urban landscape actually feed in a lot to the to the Singapore myth? I mean, as as far as it's Definitely. understood elsewhere, you know, I mean, that idea that, I mean, again, tied into what I was saying at the beginning about elites in developing countries wanting to cut themselves off from the rest of society and just feel burdened by all these poors in our country that we just wish we could get rid of or maybe lobotomize, uh, maybe not culturally lobotomize in the way they did, they wish to do in Singapore, but maybe socially lobotomize. I don't know. But, uh, you know, just turn them into worker drones. Uh, but, uh, you know, Singapore, like the streetscape seems to also be like, ah, this would be great if we could just get rid of all these homeless on the streets, for example, and have this nice, clean society that we know if, if, if we were left alone, if us white people, us elites in these countries were just left alone, we'd be able to have a Singapore. So why can't we just turn the whole of our whole country into Singapore? I mean, of course, you're right, and but it's not as white people I would taste into it. It's certainly the the elites in Jakarta, for example, um, hate the informal right. settlements in Jakarta and would like them to be completely eliminated. And they have Singapore in mind, and they explicitly cite Singapore when they do, uh, you know, slum clearances, as they would call them, uh, force people out of the city, and then redevelop them into these, uh, you know, gleaming new high-rise developments. And I think, you know, lots of people know the Singapore skyline is these very high-end mm. prestige buildings um i think didn't you george stay in the marina sands when you were there which is this hotel which is uh these very high skyscrapers and yes with a ship george, on top please of- please share about your um your capitalist experiences of singapore your well-paid for well-heeled cosmopolitan visits to um to Singapore when uh, you exploit uh, the international workers of Singapore by being there and living in these high-rise hotels. Tell us, please. Well, I mean, all I can say is that if you do stay in one of these um, extremely opulent um, international hotels, you can look out over there's um, these gardens by the bay, which is this incredible slightly alien landscape and you can you can look it up on google and see some of the images and you can see that on one side and and look out over the bay and see um the ships kind of um, collecting in the bay as they're about to, to to come into to singapore and look the other side and you have all of these um extremely polished financial buildings um and it is it is quite a sight but one thing, and I think we we talked about this a bit before we started recording, is that it's quite boring. And then this is a problem for the foreign talent that, that Singapore wants to attract and to retain, is that actually you, you kind of, you know, you go out um, in, in the evening and you try and see what's what's going on in downtown Singapore, try and see what's up. Um, and there's not a lot really going on. And this is a problem that the Singaporean uh, government, the, the PAP, have recognised, right? They want to make it more exciting to tourists and to foreign talent and to Singaporean talent. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they, they do realise that it's a, that all this state control has made society very sterile. Mm. Uh, it's not very creative. Um, it, it, they don't really develop their own creative industries or technological breakthroughs and so on. Uh, and so really for economic reasons, for very cynical economic reasons, 
uh, they've started to try to liberalize a bit. So they've got this joint liberal arts program with Yale. So they just need it's to Yale. import import a little bit of California into Singapore, and then you have the real. There's, there's, an, element, there's an element of that. There's no <laughs> doubt. There's an element of that, and that Sorry, combines to... that combines with the meritocratic ideology of of the PAP. But that they say the reason why we're in office, the reason why we are best placed to take all these decisions, and everybody else should basically shut up, is because we're the smartest guys in the room, mm. and we've risen to the top. Meritocratic ideology is at the centre of the PAP's uh, ruling book strategy. Meritocrats could, aren't, could you aren't, tell aren't us? cool, are they? I mean, they're, they're trying to get they're Yale, cool. Yale they're really boring. and that's to how they're going to be I more mean, interesting. But you were there for four days. I think you were bored. I was there for <laughs> a longer period when I had a fellowship at the National University of Singapore. I think they invited me by mistake. Um, and, uh, and I got bored. And it reminded me of when I was an undergraduate in, uh, in Coventry, the University of Warwick, there was a Coventry tourist board and they listed 10 uh, interesting things to do in Coventry. And one of them was to, to go to Birmingham. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what the interesting thing to Birmingham. do in Singapore. Exactly, desperate. So the interesting thing to do in Singapore is to leave Singapore. God, you, and that's, what, you, and that's you, what lots of people do. They fly EU, to- Southeastern, EU-supporting Remainer snobs. What's wrong with Birmingham? Nothing at all. I can't believe you guys. This it's is the second you, city. It's the second city in the UK slandering the noble brummy people with your uh, with your disgusting comments there's nothing um, wrong with, for for with for, the... listen, for for listeners who don't know the uk very well um cuz i know you guys are all over the world um lee uh, phil's comments can just be safely ignored actually so just to just in case <laughs> yeah. you're wondering he's, yeah, he's that's he's right i'm the only one who's standing for the people of the north and the midlands here on oh, the podcast please. that's fine Please. <laughs> I'm actually the only one that's from either of those places. <laughs> you could stop trolling me now, Phil. No, 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 um, no. But got, yeah, I've it is boring. It is boring. They've tried to develop more of a cultural life, but the fact is that it's always within restraints, and and lots of people find it a very dull uh, so, place to live. I wanted to roll back, if I may. Um, uh, what is the on the questions? I suppose of uh, then social tension. Um, mm. Who are the opposition? So you mentioned the fact that they're um, that kind of um, vote areas that vote for the opposition are punished in terms of infrastructural spend, and that the reigning party, the single party, can um, can dominate the state machinery in such a way that it can. Um, uh, punish kind of expressions of dissent and so on. So who are the opposition? What do they stand for? Um, how many inroads, how many gains have they made over time? There are a number of different opposition parties. They're all quite small for the reasons I've outlined, but they have actually grown substantially uh, in terms of electoral support in recent years. And that reflects the the, the tensions within Singaporean capitalism that I, I talked about a bit earlier on, growing inequality, um, concern about uh, pensions, um, concern about overcrowding of houses and public infrastructure, um, concern about high rents and cost of living, you know, partly because Singapore is a very high immigration society, a a third of the population is are immigrants. Uh, And obviously, a lot of investment can also flow into Singapore, uh, into real estate. So that's really driven up the cost of living, um, and wages are, are held down to support an export-oriented mm. economy. So all those tensions are really combined. And uh, in the in the 2006 and 2011 elections, the PAP lost 
a combined 15% of electoral support. So the 2011 election was its worst in history. It yeah. still got 60% of the vote, yeah. um, but that's low for the PAP, uh, so precisely because it's so dominant. The main opposition is a sort of motley array of um, the sort of middle class liberals who are committed to just a more free democratic society and an organise around tropes of democratic accountability and, uh, you know, uh, more freedom and that, that kind of thing, that kind of principled position. Uh, and they started to get seats in the late 1980s when the working, working class support for the PAP started to decline, mm. when it started to close down um, low value added industries and try to forcibly shift to higher value added services and started to offshore some of its industries, in fact, in neighbouring countries. Um, but more recently, the, the, the party that's emerged to prominence is the Workers' Party, um, which is trying to represent the position of people who are more poor and marginal in Singapore and has really campaigned probably most prominently around the issue of population and immigration. Mm. So, again, this is another parallel to other advanced capitalist states where the left has been destroyed, i.e. all advanced capitalist states, um, where immigration becomes a really important flashpoint yeah. for anger and dissatisfaction with a regime that seems to be heedless to the concerns of marginalised groups and seems mostly to be filling the boots of the well-heeled um, professional middle class and, and capitalist class. So that became a real flashpoint in the 2011 elections in particular, uh, which resulted in the big uh, loss in in the in the share vote in the share of vote, but not a big mm. loss in terms of seats overall. And so it was a real shock to the PAP actually. Yeah, I guess given this, I mean, possibly declining but still secure PAP um, hegemony. I mean, I guess Alex, you had a you had a question on, I guess this the adoptability of the Singapore model in other yeah. contexts. Yeah, I mean. I, we, I think it was discussed uh, by right wingers uh, at the time of Brexit, you know, in, or rather in relation to Brexit, that, you know, you could create a Singapore on Thames. Um, it's also been discussed, I mean, as I've already mentioned, you know, the uh, used in Brazil as an argument that Brazil should privatize uh, any state owned enterprise is completely uh, ignorant of, of what the actual Singaporean reality is, as, as Lee's described. But Thinking less about the Singaporean myth, as we've already discussed, um, it's kind of departs quite strongly from the reality. Um, how much is the Singaporean reality in any way an, an adoptable model, or alternatively, uh, how much is it a kind of how much is a presage a certain future uh, for for the rest of us? So I think the answer there's two parts to my answer to that question. I guess one is that I really don't think Singapore is a model because Anybody that thinks that there is such a thing as a development model that you can copy from one place to the next is not thinking about development in the right way. So, and they're not thinking about, frankly, they're not thinking about development in a Marxist way, and that's the way you have to Maybe think they're not it. thinking. Maybe they're not thinking at all, it's possible. It's easier to have a model, because then you just say, well, onto well, the next that's, well, that's well, true. Can I, what, just one what? anecdote on, on not thinking, uh, just because I was looking up some examples of, <laughs> of people saying really stupid things about really being like stuff. Singapore. Uh, there's an American kind of uh, right-wing libertarian economist who was telling, um, who had lived in Singapore and was kicked out 
for for finding it too authoritarian, but who was uh, advising the Brazilian government, Bolsonaro's government, not to privatize state-owned enterprises, but just to give them away. Um, that was his big policy recommendation. So you know, there's lots, lots of, you can get pretty far in life by not thinking. Was that that nutty guy who was like shooting at people in the street? No, <laughs> no, no, it's a different that, guy. We talked we talked about that guy previously. He was the um, very pro Pinochet guy. What, wasn't he? Chile, I can't yeah, remember. Chile, he, yeah, he, yeah, he was a defender yeah. of the episode. No, but that, that, was, that guy was just a random nut job. This, my example is like an actual legit, uh, you know, academic economist. <laughs> Christopher I mean, Lindell, what's, what, what's the difference between those two categories of people? So, uh, I mean, this is a this is a subject that we that I've just uh, now uh, sent in the proofs for a new uh, book, a fourth edition of the Political Economy of Southeast Asia, um, and we discussed this idea about development in that book and different visions of development. And there has been this idea that the newly industrialised countries of East Asia, Northeast Asia, or Southeast Asia present some kind of model for the rest of the world that if you can copy their policies and their institutions, then you too can achieve development. So there's this idea, this, and frankly, it's a, it's a, it's a revised version of neoliberalism. It's a, it's a later version of neoliberalism. The early version, which is sometimes called roll back um, neoliberalism, is the idea that you just need to roll back the state and let entrepreneurs flourish and, and then it'll be fine and then you'll get rapid development. That was rapidly realised to be a load of tosh. And then there was a new version of neoliberalism that focused on getting the right institutions in place. So it wasn't about less state, but it was about getting the right sort of state. So if you could have the right policies and the right institutions in place, then you could get developments. This is the whole good governance, mm. um, the new institutionalism, uh, new institutionalist economics, all that kind of stuff is focused around getting the right policies in place and then magic things will happen. Now, the reason why that's uh, um, bollocks, to use a technical term, is uh, that you can only develop under certain geopolitical um, and uh, historical circumstances within the overall development of capitalism. And that's what Singapore did. So it had a unique position in the, the early Cold War, because what it was doing was providing a safe haven for international capital at a time of immense mm. social unrest elsewhere in the region. So don't forget there were uh, there was still communist insurgency in, in, in Malaysia. There was an attempted uh, communist coup in Indonesia and a massacre of uh, over a million communists in Indonesia in 65. There was communist insurgency in Thailand, in the Philippines. There was the Indochina War, uh, the Vietnam War. And, you know, Singapore was this safe haven. It was a place that was technocratically governed, clean. Yeah. Uh, it provided a safe haven for people that wanted to invest. And, that, and it also benefited from British security umbrella. So the British were based in Singapore until the 1970s, until they withdrew, and then subsequently the American security umbrella. So they were able to exploit that and also their position as an entrepot in the region. And then later on, they were able to exploit um, the first round of liberalization of global investment, what we now mm. call globalization, offshoring of, in, of industry and investment. And they were able to tap that. And then later on, because of their uh, gains at that point in time, they were able to transition into high-end services and yeah. so on. So you can't just, you can't 
abstract its development gains from yeah. that historical context. You can't just copy what Singapore did because the context today is completely different from the context where those policies worked. Yeah. And those same policies wouldn't work in Singapore today. I think that's a really important point. And I mean, I guess my take on this is that if you're talking about who, whose who's capitalist utopia is, is Singapore, it's always foreign capital. It's not, not domestic capital because the Singaporean domestic capitalist class is, is, is quite weak for a number of reasons. But for foreign companies, Singapore is low tax, low regulation, low wage. So the idea of trying to make your own country into a, into Singapore is quite strange because it's only for foreign capital that um, these kind of, to the extent that they pertain at all, that these kind of stereotypical um, ideas of, of, of what Singapore is actually seem to seem to function. But I guess to maybe to move on to you know the, the prospects and looking forward, mm. um, what's 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 going to happen in the future? This is always the good bit. You have to say what's what's coming up next. What, uh, yeah, what does the future hold for the, the Singapore? And that touches world? also Alex's question about the extent to which it shows a shadow of the future for other yeah other states. I mean, I said earlier that maybe authoritarianism is the ideal shell for neoliberalism um, because the contradictions of uh, capitalist development in the neoliberal era are growing inequality. Um, and uh, growing social unrest against the inequities. And this conflict between the conditions required for a transnational mode of capitalist development, the economic and social conditions required, low wages, relatively open borders and so on, and the, the political requirements of maintaining order in a society. Those two things are now in tension. Mm. Um, and in Singapore, those things are coming apart now. But it's not that it's not the only way to resolve that that tension. You don't have to go through an authoritarian route. You can um, you can go through a, a kind of state capitalist in, in, incorporate the regions, have a kind of national model of growth kind of post neoliberal conservative model as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've written about that in the in the context of you know, Boris Johnson's political project yeah, exactly. um, on the full Brexit, where there, there, there is this kind of post-liberal approach to doing that. So this isn't the only way of doing it, but I think it's a way that a lot of people find attractive. And, and what's interesting about the Singapore government's response to the electoral losses of, of 2011 is they've done, they've, they've launched something, and this is very typical of the PAP, which I think has real resonances across the world, and that is um, a very technocratic approach to participation, to political participation and diffusing and channeling political mm. conflict. And this is something they've been doing since the 1980s when they first introduced nominated, i.e. unelected members of parliament from various social groups. Um, but it, most recently they launched this thing called Our Singapore Conversation, which was these state-organised conversations with the great unwashed uh, and NGOs and so on about, you know, what, what's, what's your problem? You know, why, why are you voting against us? What's the us? problem? Um, and from which they could, you know, pick and choose the things. What that was, was, wait, 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 what was that? What was that, George? I was just saying, what's what's the problem? It's a... It's a in a particular in a particular voice, what was the voice? In a, uh, it's, in a, it's a reference to a comedian. Um, I, I don't know what's going on anymore. 
I, 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 I've got I just, no idea what's going on. I really just thought that was best ignored. Yeah. Um, yeah and I'm no. literally sitting across the table. Yeah. I want some accountability here. This isn't like <laughs> the, PAP, the PAP regime. What's, uh, what's going on to, here? If you go to people and you say, what's the problem? What's the problem? Then it forces them to think about what the problem is and how they can um, they can get over their problems. You know, for example, if um, if America and North it's, Korea, it's, it's an I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it's, it's an interview that. slash therapeutic technique that that you're trying out here, and um, it doesn't work. It sounds very counterproductive and ineffective, I have to say. I think it's um, it's meant to be a joke, but clearly. I should have just not said anything. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's go back to what we were talking about. Thank you. Um, so what was I saying? Uh, yeah, the technocratic participation. So they launched this thing called the Our Singapore Conversation. And it was a state-organized set of interactions uh, between people from government and people from civil society and ordinary members of the public. And it was it was very much controlled by them. And this is very typical of them that they take what are political issues, which are fundamentally questions about who rules, why, in whose interest and so on, and turn them into technocratic questions of policy that they could respond to. Um, and lots of people, you know, opposition denounced this, uh, denounced this process, but it was relatively successful in coming up with a series of, of alterations to government policy, including... Um, quite substantial increases in state welfare, um, particularly for the poorest in society. And so that's another way in which Singapore bucks the, the right wing or libertarian mm. idea that welfare spending is actually increasing in Singapore to try to buy off societal discontent. Still not sufficient, uh, but it has increased. And there's no way that they would have done this in the 90s because supposedly Asian values were all about self-reliance and so on. But the thing that's interesting and is a model is not the increased welfare spending part, although I think there's always an element of material concessions to buy off dissent um, in any attempt to maintain hegemony. Uh, the interesting thing is the technocratic participation that tries to depoliticize and channel political discontent into safe uh, routes that can be managed and controlled by incumbent elites. And mm. the obvious parallel is to France, where uh, Emperor, I mean, sorry, President Macron um, held his. Um, <laughs> oh, I uh, see what you did there. His great national debate. You remember after all the protests, the Gilets Jaunes protests and so on. He said, "Okay, we're going to hold this great, these great debates all around the nation. I'm going to go around and I'm going to listen to people, and and through that we'll decide what the problems are, and then I'll make the policy changes." And this was, you know, could could have been copied from the PAP. Uh, playbook you know he determined the terms of the debate he yeah. determined the questions yeah and he did most of the talking yeah <laughs> um and I, so and he comes out with this slate of policy reforms says oh i know what the, all the problems are and here's my solution to society's ills yeah and there's a parallel process going on at the european union level i mean i i i think there's a pretty this is going to be my prediction um that this things like citizens assemblies citizens juries forms of participation without binding decision-making power, those are going to increase and be defended by the left um, across Europe. I think and, that's true. And it, the, the, the place to look on this is, is Gary Rodan's work. And Gary's the person that I've learned almost everything about Singapore from and has written a great, great books on accountability and participation, uh, including one very recently. And 
uh, it has enormous resonance for the rest of the world because what you're saying is, look, there's different ways, different modes of participation. Some of them can be democratic, which are all about recognising the sovereignty of the people. But there can also be other mo modes of accountability and participation that could be moral, mm. could be moralistic. You know, uh, our politicians should be morally upright. Uh, they should be uh, not corrupt. Yeah. Um, and I really technocratic modes of participation. And we, we already inhabit that. I really you think about the yeah. way that we are consulted all the time you know every time yeah. there's a bill there's a formal consultation it's a consultation the age some, of consultation. some left populist um parties thrive on this i mean i think it's a real it's going to be a, a real challenge of how to differentiate the democratic modes of, part, of participation from the formalistic or the moralistic or the technocratic ones they, they are but, all they're all about can i just say yeah. it's all about where power lies yeah so in democratic modes of participation the power lies with the people yeah in technocratic modes of participation the power lies with the elite who get to set the terms of the participation and can therefore channel it in ways that maintain the status quo. So on this democracy point, Phil, you had um, you had a, um, a question or a, a, a point around Hong Kong to bring in. Here. Yeah, it was too. So, I mean, the other kind of the other uh, or a similar um, model, I suppose, on the global stage comparable to Singapore was Hong Kong, at least until recently, until the mass protests um, in the last couple of years. Uh, the idea of a, a, a city-state, um, incredibly efficient, incredibly wealthy, cosmopolitan, sophisticated, open, mercantile trading, um, capitalist, technocratic, um, all of this was um, and low taxes, low regulation, open to business, good for growth. All of this was very similar to Singapore. And then it's exploded into something else um, off the back of an extradition case. It suddenly kind of metamorphosed into this um, roiling democratic um, struggle for political rights, for greater representation, astonishing scenes. Um, and we've had a, we had a previous episode about um, Hong Kong where we talked about the kind of unevenness and contradictions mm. of this rapid um, political um, transformation. But nonetheless, I mean, anyone who has any kind of democratic um, instinct would be um, re heartened and um, enthused by the tremendous um, kind of roiling of uh, transformation and popular upheaval in Hong Kong. So I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is, you know, there we had the kind of the image of Hong Kong as this uh, efficient technocratic neoliberal paradise was shattered. And it turned out that underneath that there was this um, tremendous kind of turbulence that had been unsuspected hitherto. And so I wonder if um, Singapore is in a similar way. Is it um, is it got subterranean currents at work that might shatter the image of technocratic efficiency? I mean, there are some parallels. And uh, my friend Toby Carroll, who you interviewed about Hong Kong, had lived in Singapore previously and, and sees many parallels between the two countries. But I think there are some differences in that Hong Kong is is much more unequal and that the, the poverty and the slum conditions of housing uh, in Hong Kong, I think, are substantially worse. Um, that the Singaporean regime is actually much more responsive to to the people. Um, so, if you look at the way they've adapted since 2011, for example, there is a sense in which, you know, they say, well, the democratic system that exists in Singapore, although it's constrained, has an important signalling effect. It mm. signals to the PAP you need to adjust your policy in order to stay in power. 
So it keeps them on their toes. Whereas, of course, you know, the, the Hong Kong system is not uh, really democratic at all. Um, thanks, of course, to the British who left it without any real functioning democracy. And the other big difference is that, um, as, as Toby discussed with you, um, a lot of the unrest in Hong Kong takes the form of an anti-mainland Chinese protest. So it's, a, it, it's, an, it's an increasingly separatist and nationalist uh, protest that seems to say, well, there's a Hong Kong identity here, uh, it, Cantonese and uh, a particular form of identity that we don't want anything to do with you. I mean, I remember being in the uh, Umbrella Movement's camps in 2014, and there were, there were posters that displayed the mainland as, as, a, as a turd. And it was really vicious, nasty stuff. And it's only got worse since. And separatist sentiment, the idea that Hong Kong should become independent, has risen to 40% or more. In the context of the coronavirus, uh, Hong Kong health workers are currently on strike, 5,000 of them on strike, because they're saying the border must be sealed. Mm. Uh, we don't want to treat these uh, basically foreigners. So there's that quite nasty... Um, anti-Chinese sentiment, which is entirely understandable in the Hong Kong context, because Hong Kong is dominated by the Chinese Communist Party, and that's different to Singapore. So in Singapore, um, you know, the government says you know, we're in, we're in charge, we're in control, we're accountable. Uh, so you can vote against us if you don't like us, and and it is somewhat responsive to that. Uh, the inequalities are not as bad, although they are bad and they are worsening. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the Singapore government is unlikely to be roiled by that kind of unrest. The, real, the only real kind of mass unrest that has been in recent years has been among uh, migrant workers. So in 2011, I think, there was the first strike in decades, which was among uh, migrant workers from the Chinese mainland who were bus drivers. I think about 300 bus drivers went on strike um, over low pay. And then there was a riot among um, ethnic Indian workers in Little India in Singapore who were, um, I mean, the, the, the exploitation of migrant workers, we've not really talked about that in Singapore, yeah. but it is really intense. Um, and it's an important part of the economic model as well. It's, it's an essential part of the economic model that these that people are brought in from uh, developing Asia to work in construction and uh, low-end menial service work and they, they live in very poor conditions, they're often in debt bondage, yeah. they're often abused by their employers, they suffer incredible rates of mental distress. Um, and they rioted in Little India. And both of these incidents were massive shocks to the wider population and certainly to the regime because they're simply not used to any mass gatherings or, or unrest. And crackdowns followed um, and it certainly fed, but it also fed into an anti-immigration sentiment. So there was a big protest against the population white paper, I think, again in 2011. So, so I guess to, maybe just to, to, to wrap it up, does, I guess the question about the future of Singapore is a, is a question about the future of Southeast Asia as well. Is there a, is there a compelling vision of the future that the PAP you know, maybe to answer this quickly, that the PAP has? Because I think some things that I've read seem to suggest that it it, it doesn't have a, a very clear, self-confident idea of what comes next for Singapore. No, I think it's been a problem since, you know, first world status was achieved, is where do you go next? You just keep climbing the value-added Z- chain. Zeroth world? 
you're going negative one world. And it's all about economic growth. You know, it's the ultimate uh, uh, in economic reductionism. We just want more and more GDP growth. Mm. You know, we want to maintain a rate of about five percent per year. That requires we keep wages low and we keep immigration relatively high. That's it. We just keep doing whatever is required, undergoing perpetual structural adjustment to the winds of the global economy. And, and that's it. There is no vision of a good life. There's no vision of a transformative future. Um, there's just a vision of end, an endless um, horizon of, of capitalist development. Um, with no mission to save Singapore from communism like before. So, you know, it's the ultimate in capitalist realism, really. Great note to, to finish on. You can all fucking like go and live in fucking Singapore and United Nations. Well, can I also want to feel it's the 1920s? It's 1920s. The, the social democrats yeah, gonna, are gonna fucking sure. betray you. The social democrats are gonna betray you. Watch out, Phil. Democrats. 